Right, we uh, go back to, to Romans tonight and uh, the second talk. So we'll be doing chapters 9 to the end. But let's um, just, just recap what we, we did last time. And in, in the first eight chapters, um, Paul dealt with, with what I term salvation, past, present and future. Um, he, he deals with mankind's need of salvation. And remember how he demonstrated that everyone is without excuse. Everyone ultimately can know they need salvation. And then, having established mankind's need of salvation, then he moved on to deal with the salvation that God has provided. And this is what I call salvation, past, present and future. And um, just just quickly go over it, what it all boiled down to was you have past salvation, which is deliverance or being rescued. That's what salvation means, a saviour, a rescuer, delivered from the penalty of sin. And uh, that's justification. We're justified. Um, justified, never sinned. And that was through Jesus' death. It was when Jesus died on the cross that he took our sins and he exchanged our sins for his righteousness. And so there we have past salvation, because it's already happened. The moment you got born again, it's in the past, it's done delivered from the penalty of sin, that is justification by Jesus' death, and it is righteousness imputed. The righteousness of Jesus is credited, as it were, to us. Our sinfulness was credited to him. And then we saw that Paul dealt with the fact that it's not just a question of being saved so that we're going to heaven, we're not going to the lake of fire. It's more than that. And there's what I call present salvation, and we saw that Paul goes on to say, look, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And he says, no, of course not. And so then we come on to being rescued from the power of sin in our lives. And that's what the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification, holiness, same word in the Greek. It means to be separated to something. We've been separated to God so that we're how he wants us to be rather than the world. So deliverance from the power of sin or sanctification and that is through Jesus's resurrection because the key to us being delivered from the power of sin in our lives is the fact that because Jesus rose again from the dead he now lives in us we actually have the life of Jesus within and it's his life overriding our sinful natures that that is the basis of us being sanctified being delivered from the power of sin. And so that is righteousness imparted, because it's Jesus giving us, imparting his righteousness to us a gift, you know, as a gift to us day by day. And then we saw, and Paul began to wind up Romans chapter 8, as it were, with it, we saw future salvation. And that in the future, we're going to be delivered from the actual presence of sin and this is what the bible calls being glorified because we're going to have bodies that are glorified we're going to be just like jesus and of course jesus is sinless and when we are glorified we will actually be sinless as well we will be glorified 
and that that is by Jesus' return. Because even though we might die and go to be with the Lord before the rapture, it's at the rapture when Jesus returns that we get the glorified body. And that will be righteousness perfected. So there you have it. Past salvation delivered from the penalty of sin. We're justified. The death of Jesus, righteousness imputed. Present salvation, he goes on to day by day deliver us from the power of sin in our lives, sanctification, because Jesus rose again from the dead, because he was resurrected. It's his resurrection power that overcomes our sinful nature, because he lives in us, and that is righteousness imparted to us. And future salvation, deliverance from the presence of sin, when one day we will be glorified, and that will be at Jesus' return and then we will have righteousness perfected within us. So there we have the salvation that Paul outlines, the personal salvation. Now, what we're going to do tonight, we're going to deal with the rest of Romans, but we're going to see that there are two other sections. We've dealt with the first section, all right? Now, we've got three verses, uh, sorry, three chapters, which are the next section, and then uh, you'll see that there's a third section from uh, chapter 12 through to chapter 16. But what we move on to now, Paul having dealt with that, um, in, in the next three chapters, he goes on to deal with, I suppose, what you might call the problem, or maybe you can just call it the place of the nation Israel. Paul, having established that salvation was of the Jews, all right, he now goes on to deal with the problem, if you like, or the place of the nation Israel. And remember that we saw that um, as, as Paul was summing up in Romans chapter 8, we saw more and more coming into view his teaching about predestination and election, that everything was based, including our salvation, on God's choice. So in chapter 9, as Paul moves on now to, uh, to deal with the question of Israel, he immediately states his willingness that, if possible, he would exchange his salvation for theirs. Got to remember, Paul was a Jew. And, and Paul says that, if possible, he would give up his salvation if only Israel could be saved. Now, there... You, you, you have shades of Moses. Do you remember when Moses came down from the mount, when he had the Ten Commandments, and Israel had done all the idolatry, the golden calf, and God said, I'll, I'll block them out. And, and, and Moses offered his life in, um, in, in Israel's place. And, and here you have you know, Paul exchanging the same kind of sentiments there. This, this is how much he, he loves his people. And, and the question of Israel that he, he, he goes on to deal with, because it was a question that kept coming up and it was important, and it was basically the fact that Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And yet Israel was the very nation that God brought into being so that Messiah could come. You see, Paul deals with this problem salvation came through the Jews and it culminated in Jesus the Jewish Messiah and yet the Jews rejected him and salvation passed to the Gentiles and you know this this made people scratch their heads and it raised lots of questions about what does this say about God being in control 
Here we have God in control of everything, all right? So he prepares the people for salvation. Um, Messiah comes, he's born of that nation Israel, so salvation comes to the world through Israel, but then that nation goes and rejects him, and they're lost. And, you know, scratch, scratch. So what we're asking is this. How, how come this Jewish gospel kicks off with Israel rejecting it? That's the point. This good news, this salvation, this new covenant is Jewish through and through because it came through the nation Israel. Messiah was himself a Jew. So the new covenant, as it were, uh, kind of like kicks off uh, with Israel rejecting it. And so how do you square that with the fact that Israel are God's chosen people? And how do you square that with the fact that God is in control? What sense can we make of this? Now, this is what Paul is going to deal with in the next three chapters. And what we're going to do is, is we're going to just follow his arguments step by step, uh, logically and, 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 and clearly. Now, the very first thing that, 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 that Paul says is, look, we've got to start from this point. It doesn't mean that God's word has failed. He says, what we're going to see is nothing. God's plan hasn't gone wrong, all right? So that's, that's kind of a given, okay? So he says, no, God's word hasn't failed in the slightest, and I'm, I'm going to show you why not. And he says, look, the first thing you've got to get hold of is that not all Israel is true Israel. So when we have the question, look, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as its Messiah, all right? How do you square this with Israel being God's chosen people? And Paul says, look, not all Israel is true Israel. And do you remember we saw earlier on, last time, that he established that just being descended from Abraham isn't itself enough for anything. And uh, we saw earlier on, um, last time, how Paul establishes that Abraham was the father, not just of, of, of Israel, he was the father of faith. Jew and Gentile because the whole point is the covenant that God established with Abraham was established as it were before the nation of Israel came into being so predominantly Abraham anyway is more the father of faith than the father of an actual generic people and, and, and he develops this and he says look after all what you've got to remember alright he's saying that in one way, one can define Israel as the descendants of Abraham. He says, that's fair enough. But he says, what I'm going to show you is that that isn't the true Israel. It's another Israel that also came from Abraham. And so he develops the argument. He says, look, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Ishmael. But the nation of Israel came from Isaac, not Ishmael. All right? So immediately, Abraham fathered Ishmael. Ishmael was nothing to do with Israel. He was in a completely different genealogical line. And he goes on to say, look, remember Isaac was then the father of Jacob and Esau. But Esau's descendants became the Edomite people, all right? Not Israel at all. So here you've got Abraham, all right, gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Israel came as a result of Isaac's line. Ishmael's line, who was also Abraham's grandson, that gave rise to a completely different Gentile nation, the Edomites. And so what 
What he's saying is that that establishes that you can't just say that true Israel is just the descendants of Abraham because the Edomites are the descendants of Abraham. The Ishmaelites were the descendants of Abraham, but they were Gentiles. So Paul's just establishing it's not as simple as to just say that the true Israel are descendants of Abraham. All right. And what he then goes on to say is that in regards to this, it was Isaac who was the child of promise and not Esau. So the point was, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Esau, but Isaac was the son who was the promise of God. Esau, if you like, was a bit of an aberration, all right. And remember that when um, Isaac had his children, Jacob was chosen for the birthright and not Esau. And you'll remember, you know, and, and Paul goes on to say that God chose Jacob and not Esau. So what you've got is that although all these people are descended from Abraham, not all of them are chosen. So what he's saying is that when, when we answer the question about Israel, we've got to realise that not all physical Israel is actually the true Israel. It's not enough to be descended from Abraham, because after all, loads of Gentile nations are. He says, you've got to be descended from Abraham and chosen as well. And so what he goes on to say is that the true Jews, now he's not saying that Israelites aren't Israelites. He's saying within the people of Israel, there are two Israels. And he says the true Jews are those who are the children of promise. Remember, Isaac was the child of promise, not Esau. And the messianic line came through Isaac. And so therefore, what he's saying is that the true Jews are the children of promise, and it is they who are chosen by God. So he says, in the nation of Israel throughout history, he says there are, there's a division within Israel. And that division is that there is unbelieving Israel and there is believing Israel. So there are the Jews who believe truly in God and therefore in his Messiah. And there are the Jews who do not. And he says it is believing Israel who are the ones who are chosen by God. And what he says is, right, so how do you know who the true Israel is? How do you know which of the Jews are chosen? And he says the answer is that the fruit of chosenness is becoming a believer. And we saw that in chapter 8 last time, that at the end of the day, if you become a believer, it's because God has chosen you, he predestinated you, you are elect of God. And so what Paul is saying is that in Israel, throughout history, there's true Israel and there's non-true Israel. There's believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. There are the Jews who believe in Jesus as their Messiah and there are the Jews that don't. And he says it's the believers who are true Israel and they are true Israel because they have been chosen. In exactly the same way that when it came to Abraham, God chose Abraham. And when it came to Isaac, God chose Isaac. 
Abraham had other children, but they weren't chosen. And when it came to Isaac's children, Jacob was chosen, not Esau. It's all to do with God's choice. And what he says is that, and you can't say that this is unjust, for the simple reason that God is God. Now we'll be back to that in one moment. And what he does is he then, he, he gives them the example and he, he really almost like whacks them over the head with a sledgehammer. If anyone was going to balk at the argument he's giving at, this is the example that would make them balk beyond any. And he says, remember Pharaoh. And what he says is that when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, all right, he overcame Pharaoh. But more than that, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that even when Pharaoh thought, oh yeah, I will let them go, God, God hardened his heart so he didn't let them go. And Paul says that what was happening there is you have an example that God can have mercy on who he chooses and he can harden whoever he chooses. Now, do you remember right back at the beginning of Romans when we saw it last time, what was the nature of God's judgment on sin that Paul defined? He said it's handing people over to it. That is God's judgment on sin. He hands them over to it. He says, that's what you want, right, have it. And have it in a greater measure than you could have ever possibly had in your own strength. And so the point is that ultimately Pharaoh didn't want to let God's people go, so God hardened his heart. So God can have mercy on who he chooses to have mercy. But if there are people that he doesn't have mercy on, then their hearts become more and more hardened in sin and rebellion against him. And so the point is, God's chosenness works in this way. He chooses who he wants to believe, and he chooses whom he wants to harden. Now, what Paul does now is he answers a rhetorical question because he sort of knows that there's this question in the mind of his readers, all right? And it's the question that comes up all the time when you get this thing about predestination and free will, and it's this. He answers the question, all right, or he raises it first. He says, right, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? So Paul anticipates that at this point in the argument, people are going to say, well, if God chooses who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost, then that means we haven't got any free will. So how can God condemn us for our sinfulness? If we haven't got any free will, we've got no choice in the matter, have we? Because if it's all down to God, how can it possibly be our fault? You see, this is the question that rises so often when you get this thing about predestination. So Paul is saying, if that's the case, why does God still blame us for who resists his will? I.e., does that mean we haven't got free will? Now, the way he answers that question is twofold. And it's a stroke of genius. Because he says, of course we are totally responsible for our own actions. So if somebody ends up condemned, they deserve it. He says we are totally responsible for actions. He says there's no question about there not being free will, all right? He says it's not a question of not being able to resist his will. The fact that God chooses whom he chooses doesn't mean we haven't got free will. And what he does is he says, if that was the case, 
how could the question even be raised? You see? Because if we haven't got free will, the concept of free will would be a nonsense. You might as well talk Mozart to a fish. It would be a nonsense. So the mere fact that when presented with the fact that God chooses whom he wants to choose and rejects whom he wants to reject, if you're then going to say, oh, well, does that mean, you know, are you therefore saying we haven't got free will? All right. And Paul says, of course I'm not saying that. Otherwise, how could you even raise that question in your mind? So Paul says, of course we have free will. Of course it's not all down to God in the sense that you're not responsible for your own actions. He says, if you didn't have free will, if God's sovereignty, if the fact that everything is based on God's choice, if that meant that we didn't actually have free will, then how on earth could we even raise the question of whether or not we had free will? He says, the mere fact that the question has been raised demonstrates that it's a false question. All right? Now, his second answer to it takes that one step further. And he says, and anyway, we have no right whatsoever to answer God back in that way. Now, Paul isn't saying that we have no right to inquire and ask questions. That's good. But remember, he's dealing with the question that gets raised in the, you know, in the light of the fact that God chooses, all right, oh, well, you know, well, then how can he send anyone to hell? Because if he does, they didn't have free will, and that's God being unjust, isn't it? And Paul says, no, that's an absolute nonsense. Of course we have free will, and of course we are therefore responsible for our actions and the consequences of them. And the proof of that is that we can raise the question and say, does that mean we haven't got free will? So Paul says the very question proves that it's a non-question. And it's a question that is raised normally because of a, a, a kind of a resistance to accepting that God is sovereign and in absolutely control, in absolutely in control. And that's why Paul says we have no right to answer God back in that way. And he says, look, it can never be that God is wrong. Now think about this. Non-Christians raise the question, well, Christians raise this as well, they should know better, but non-Christians raise the question, oh, well, if God is blah, 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 how come there's suffering? How come there's evil? How, right. Now then, that's a gen there's nothing wrong with asking that question. The Bible gives us the answers. But I'm talking about when that question is raised and what lies behind it is that God is unjust. Because it's saying, if God exists, then he's unjust. The mess is his fault. Can you see? It's the, it's the sinful creation, and sin is our fault, trying to shift the blame for our sinfulness onto God. It is itself sinful rebellion. And Paul gives an example here of the potter and the clay. And he says, look, the potter has every right to do with the clay what he wants precisely because he is the potter. And he says God is free to do exactly what he wants and that we have no right whatsoever to question his goodness and his love when it is quite obvious from what he's done through the death of Jesus 
What more could God have done to demonstrate his goodness and his love? And so what Paul is saying, God chooses whom he chooses and he rejects whom he rejects, right? But he says, but you can't therefore say, oh no, that, that can't be right, that's wrong. You can't then say, oh well that means we haven't got free will, so how can God condemn people if they haven't got free will? Because Paul says it doesn't mean they haven't got free will, all right? And anyway, what right have we got to be questioning God in that way where behind it lies an accusation? Because at the end of the day, if it's true that God chooses whom he wants to save and that others he chooses to reject, no one can say that that is wrong because we all deserve to be condemned. If God decides to have mercy on one person and not, and not another, that's not impugning the righteousness of God. He is free to have mercy on whom he wants to, precisely because everyone deserves his condemnation. And he says it's rebellion in our hearts when we try and use these things to try and impugn his righteousness. And he says, look, God is the potter, we're the clay. He says, let's be kept now. I mean, genuine questioning to understand, that's fine. But Paul is talking here about questioning that isn't genuine. It's the kind, you know, when unbelievers say, oh, well, if there's a God, how come there's blah, 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 blah. That's not a genuine question. That's an accusation. They don't actually want the God of the Bible to be there because they don't like him and they want to accuse him of wrongdoing. That is the essence of rebellion. We are the sinners. God is the one who is holy and righteous. And yet what do sinners want to do in their natural state? They want to make God out to be the one who's wrong and they're right. That proves the whole point about man's depravity before God. So he says, God's the potter, where the clay. Let's be very careful that our attitude is right when we're asking these questions. And, um, and what Paul then goes on to say, he says, look, he says, God's anger on those who are prepared for destruction. He says the effect that has is that it highlights his mercy on his chosen ones. And he says his chosen ones are found both amongst Jews and Gentiles. And he then quotes from Hosea, Old Testament, and Isaiah, Old, Old Testament as well, to demonstrate that the Old Testament prophesied that only a small remnant of Israel would be saved and that most of the elect would actually be Gentiles. So Paul demonstrates there that the Old Testament itself said that there'll only finally be a remnant of Israel who are saved. The vast majority of those who end up in heaven are going to be Gentiles. And this is obvious because obviously there are far, there's a far greater number of Gentiles throughout history than Jews. And he said that the problem with Israel always went back to the fact that Israel pursued righteousness by the works of the law. And he dealt with this, hasn't he, earlier on um, in Romans. He'd established that the law was given to demonstrate that you're a sinner. The law was given to show you that you can't obey it. And it takes the most incredible self-righteousness to look at the law and think you're obeying it. But he says that was always the problem with Israel. But he said that 
But because Israel didn't have the, the law as in the Ten Commandments, they weren't so prone to do that. And the Gentiles were much more open to the idea of righteousness by faith than Israel was. So for Gentiles, the idea of salvation coming as a free gift was not half as alien to them as it had become to Israel, because Israel was convinced that its righteousness was through obeying the law. And he says, and that was precisely why, when Messiah came, he proved to be such a stumbling block to Israel. That is ultimately why Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. It's because Jesus came with a righteousness that was to be given to them as a gift, but which implied that they were sinners, and that is what Israel would not accept. They believed that they were obeying the law and therefore were righteous through their own works. And, and then Paul quotes from Isaiah in, in a way that prophesies that that would be the situation um, when Messiah came. Now in chapter 10, and remember these chapter headings are arbitrary virtually, I mean they weren't part of the original inspired scriptures they were put in later. And uh, then, then Paul kind of like prays for the Jews to be saved, you know, he kind of puts a, a prayer in, and, uh, but, but highlights again their zeal for works rather than faith. And go back, this was their problem, thinking they could earn their salvation. And, um, and, and, and he said, look, in establishing their own righteousness, they are rejecting the righteousness of God. If you say, look, I can be righteous in my own strength, you don't need God's strength. So you're saying you don't need the gift of salvation. So if you don't take the gift of salvation, you're not saved. It's as simple as that. And uh, he says, but Jesus has come along and he's ended all that. The law is gone because Jesus has brought a righteousness that is by faith, i.e. one that you accept as a gift. And Paul now contrasts works and faith, all right? And... Uh, what he does is, is, is he says, look, the difference is that, that works have to perform, all right? So if you're into salvation by works, you've got to perform, you've got to come up with the goods yourself. Whereas if you're just into faith, you accept it as a gift. Now, I'm actually going to read these, these verses um, that, that are establishing this because they're verses that catch most people out, and I can understand why, sort of like, what on earth do they mean? But, but now I'm giving you the background explanation. They'll make a bit of sense. And it's in, a, it's in chapter um, 10, and it's actually, you know, sort of like these, these verses. Uh, and Paul says, and it starts from verse 5, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. So he's saying, look, there's the law. You've got to do these things. And if you do them all the time, then you'll be saved, virtually, right? But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from, from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 
as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, can you see what Paul's saying? He says, look, if you're going to be into salvation by works, then you might as well say, okay, I'm actually going to go up to heaven and I'm going to bring Jesus down from heaven. That's what happened when Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary. Or, he says, if you're going to talk about salvation by works, you might as well say, right, well, okay, Jesus died and he went down into the centre of the earth, into paradise. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go down and I'm going to raise him up from that place. And can you see, what Paul is saying, if you want salvation by works, he says it is as impossible to bring Jesus down from heaven or to bring Jesus up from the place of the dead once he died. He said, it is as impossible for you to do that as it is to obey the law. You see? So he says, salvation by works you've got to perform. But he says, for you to be righteous in your own strength, you might as well go up to heaven and bring Jesus down. You might as well go to the place of the dead and bring him up. I remember I used to say, look, I can no more give up smoking, I could jump over the moon. That's what Paul's saying. He says, look, when you can jump over the moon, you can be saved in your own strength. When you've got the power to go up to heaven and bring the Son of God down to earth, then you've got the power to obey the law, but not until. You see, so what Paul is saying, that is the scale of what you're talking about. If you're going to say, I can be saved by works, he says, that is as impossible as going up to heaven and bringing Jesus down. Can you see? But he says, faith, however, is just accepted, is just accepting a gift that God has given us. He says, it's simply by believing in the name of Jesus and confessing the name of Jesus. And he says, that is the same for the Jew and the Gentile alike. He says, it's the faith that comes through simply hearing the gospel. You hear that God has provided salvation if you believe on Jesus as your saviour. He says it is as simple as that. Obviously, therefore, hence the importance of evangelism. Because he says, how can they believe if they haven't heard? But he says, salvation, being saved, is as simple as that. But he said, Israel heard this gospel they heard it from Jesus. But he said, and what did they do? They rejected it. And then he quotes both from Moses in the Pentateuch and Isaiah. So he had two quotes from the Old Testament that prophesied that that is exactly what was going to happen. That when the means of salvation came along, that Israel would reject it. So now we move into chapter 11. And... Paul goes on to say, look, but Israel hasn't rejected it totally. Remember, Paul's demonstrating that not all who call themselves Jews are Jews, that not all Israel is true Israel. There's an unbelieving Israel and there's a believing Israel. The believing Israel believe because they're chosen of God. And remember that many Gentiles are chosen of God as well. So he says, look, Israel has not been rejected totally. And he says, I'll prove that to you, I'm a Jew. 
So I'm chosen because I'm a believer. Therefore, Israel is not rejected totally because I am myself a Jew. And he gives the illustration from the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, which we've certainly done here. But you'll remember that uh, after the... um, you know, the demonstration against the prophets of Baal when Elijah proved that, that the God of Israel was the, the one true God. Um, he, he got all upset because he, he, he thought that, that he was the only one who was being faithful to the Lord. He didn't, as it were, see the response in Israel that he wanted. But what God showed him was that, that there were 7,000 others in Israel who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. So although... Elijah hadn't met any of them. He thought he was the only Jew who was following the Lord. And and God told him, no, there's 7,000 others. You haven't met them, but don't worry, they're there. They haven't bowed the knee to Baal either. So at the time of Elijah, there was a remnant, right? And Paul says it's exactly the same now. He says there is a remnant of Israel, just like that 7,000 in Elijah's time, And he said, they, that remnant, is the Israel that is chosen for salvation by grace. And this is devoid of works. They realize that it's not salvation by works and that these people are the true elect of Israel. It is those people who are the true Jews. But he then goes on to say, but that's not the end of the story. Because remember, Paul was then, you know, sort of like speaking, as it were, at the beginning of the church age. So he says, look, here and now, and this is the same at the moment, all right, same for us in this day and age as well, that there is a remnant of the Jews who are believers, and they are the true Israel. But Paul says, that's not the end of the story, all right? Because in the same way that our salvation has a great future aspect to it, so Israel's future, Israel has a great future aspect to it as well. And Paul says, look, their rejection, the fact that Israel has been rejected, all right, because Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God brought the church into being to take its place, all right. And that is a largely Gentile affair. So he says, look, Israel's rejection as the means of salvation to the earth has meant great blessing for the Gentiles. Because when Israel was rejected, God replaced them with the Gentiles. So the church replaced Israel. And wow, what a blessing for the church. What a blessing for us. Okay. So we have replaced Israel. What a great blessing. So Israel's rejection has meant great blessing for the church, those of us who have replaced Israel. And then Paul says, but well, how much greater then will be the blessing for the world when Israel is re-included? So what he's saying, the fact that Israel has been rejected by God has brought great blessing to the world. But he says, look, if their rejection of great ble- has brought great blessing to the world, how much greater blessing will it be when Israel are re-included? So now Paul says the fact that Israel has been cut out is only temporary. 
The fact that the church has replaced Israel as the means of salvation on the earth, that is a temporary arrangement. Israel is going to, at one point, be re-included. And he says, look, there is nothing for the Gentiles to boast about over Israel. So he says the fact that the Gentiles have replaced Israel, we, we, you know, the Gentiles can't get all kind of, oh, we're the church, we've replaced Israel, Yabu sucks. Because he says, look, the Gentiles are a grafted on bunch of branches. He says Israel is an olive tree and Israel is God's original olive tree. All right? The Gentiles have merely been grafted on to replace the branches that were cut off when Israel was rejected. So because Israel was the original olive tree, and because the Gentiles are branches that have been grafted on, but as Paul says, against nature, because they're not the original branches, he says, how much easy, easier is it going to be to graft the original natural branches back on? So Paul says Israel was the natural olive tree, but the branches were cut off. We as the Gentiles were grafted on as branches in its place, but that was against nature because we were not originally of the tree. So he says if God can graft branches on which weren't part of the original tree, he says how much easier is it going to be for God to cut those branches off and put the original branches back on? So he says, don't you Gentiles feel proud, you know, because you've replaced the Jews? Because he says, crumbs, they're the natural branches. God can put them back on just like that any time he likes. And then Paul just chucks in a bit of a, a warning and he says, look, look, he says, God has the power to, to, to ungraft you lot dead easy. You're unnatural branches. He says, you could, he says, if Israel could get ungrafted and they were the natural branches, he says, how, easy, how much easier would it be for God to ungraft the Gentiles? So he says, don't, don't go and get big-headed about this. But he says, the natural olive branches, the Jews, who were grafted off, are one day going to be grafted back. And when it happens, because they are of the original olive tree, that will be the most natural thing in the world. So therefore there is no basis for the Gentile church to lord it over Israel uh, because somehow they've replaced it. And there is today what gets called replacement theology. This idea that the church has replaced Israel full stop. And that all the promises in the Old Testament to Israel that haven't come true yet now apply spiritually to the church and not to Israel. That is completely wrong. So Paul says, right, therefore, although Israel is hardened against God, because remember, if Israel is hardened against God, God can choose, have mercy on whom he has mercy, he can harden whom he chooses to harden. So he says, look, although Israel at the moment is hardened against God as a nation and that only a remnant are being saved, he says, this is actually only going to be until the full number of the Gentiles are in. And he says, when the full number of the Gentiles are in, then all Israel will be saved. So what he's saying is, Israel is going to stay out 
until the full number of those who are going to be saved through the witness and ministry of the church are in. Because the Gentile church primarily reaches to the Gentiles. Reaches out to the Jews, and many Jews are Christians, but remember they're a remnant. The church is largely a Gentile affair to Gentiles. And he says Israel is going to stay out until the full number of the Gentiles are in. Now, having said that, I can now tell you, gasp in amazement, when the rapture is going to be. The rapture is going to be the moment that the last Gentile believer has been saved. The moment therein, it will be the rapture. Because then the church's job is over. Then the full number of the Gentiles are in, in the church age. Then there'll be the rapture and the church will be taken. And what will happen then? In the Great Tribulation, one of the first things that happens is 144,000 Jews become Christians and they re-evangelize the world. The world then is, is, is evangelized through Israel, not through the church. The church is gone. And then remember, after the second coming, all right, Jesus is going to rule the world for a thousand years from Israel. So he's saying, look, although Israel is hardened at the moment, when the full number of the Gentiles are in, then all Israel will be saved. And he says, look, the calling of God is quite irrevocable. And he says, all those promises to Abraham, all those promises in the Old Testament to Israel, he says, they haven't been annulled. They haven't been, you know, God hasn't changed his mind. They haven't gone anywhere. They are all going to come true. And so he says, look, God's final destiny for Israel still stands. And it is that all Israel will be saved. And he says, remember as well that you Gentiles who are now in the church, who are obedient to God, remember before you were obedient to God, you were very disobedient to God, just as Israel is very disobedient to God now. So he says the fact that you were disobedient to God didn't stop you being saved, now you're obedient to God. And he says the fact that Israel is now in rebellion against God and hardened, that doesn't mean that's the end of Israel. Israel will come back. God's plans for Israel, Israel will be fulfilled in exactly the same way that his plan for the Gentile church is being fulfilled now. And then Paul winds up and says, God will have mercy on Israel too. Now, we're going to read the last few verses of chapter 11 because these are vitally important. And I'll tell you why they're vitally important. When Paul was dealing with salvation, past, present and future, all right, i.e. personal salvation, what it means to be saved, dear Christian, all right, to escape God's judgment. He wound up by saying, you were chosen. And that's why you believe, because you were chosen. All right. He then answers or, or deals with this dilemma about Israel. Well, how come Israel was the nation that brought salvation into the world? Jesus was a Jew 
And then Israel rejected their own Messiah. How do you square God's sovereignty with that? So Paul goes all through this thing. There's two Israels. There's the true Israel, those in Israel who are chosen, those who aren't, those who aren't don't believe. Well, not in Israel, they're all over the world. Right. So he says, for the time being, there's a remnant saved by grace. They're the true Israel. But one day, the whole of Israel is going to come in as a nation, and that is yet future. All right? And he says, at the end of the day, this is all to do with God's choice. But he says, can we therefore say, oh, well, if God chooses us, then it's not up to us at all. We've got no free will. How can we be held responsible? He says, no, you can't say that. You are a free agent. You are responsible for your decisions. The fact that God chose you does not annul the fact that you chose to follow him. Period. All right. And he says, and we've got to be very careful on this, that we don't end up like a little bit of clay with an attitude, having an argument with its potter. And these verses now just cover the whole thing that thus far there's a distinct possibility that you might have had a job getting the little grey cells round all that I've been saying. Now let's read these verses. Because one of, what I want to say is that that is exactly what we should expect. That we've got a bit of a job getting little grey cells round this. Listen to this. Oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And Paul says, just in case you're having a job with this, just in case you're thinking, this just seems to be the most incredible contradiction. Paul says, yes, and you shouldn't be surprised that it seems like that. Because he says, we're touching here the deep things of God. And when you start to touch the really deep things of God, you're dealing with something that is just too big for our brains to ever conceive. I mean, look, scientists at the moment, you can demonstrate that light is particle motion, it's photons. You can demonstrate that light is wave motion. You can demonstrate both. You can do experiments that, that, that prove that light has got to be particle motion. You can do experiments that prove that light has got to be wave motion. Can't be both. And no, indeed, it's an apparent contradiction. But the point is we just don't know enough about light yet. So, when it comes to this whole thing about salvation, and remember the nation of Israel is all tied up with this as well, when it comes to this whole thing about God chose us, because at the end of the day if he hadn't chosen us, if God hadn't enabled us to want to follow him, we'd have never wanted to follow him because we're sinful. Sinners don't want to follow the Lord. Sinners don't wake up and think, oh yeah, oh, I think I'll repent. <laughs> of course they don't. You repented because God enabled you to repent because he'd chosen you. So we think, right, okay, but then that means we haven't got free will. Paul says, of course you've got free will. If you, if, you, if, if, you, if you didn't have free will, how come you could ask these questions? And he says, my goodness, this is a contradiction, isn't it? This is, a, I mean, he wouldn't have known this. This is a bit like light being wave and particle motion. It seems to be contradictory. 
And as Paul says, but this shouldn't surprise you. Do you really expect to understand the mind of God? So don't be surprised that you can't actually get your little grey cells around this. <coughs> At the end of the day, no one can. But what we can do is we can believe it. Because it's true. Because the word of God says so. And remember, he started off in verse 10, uh, sorry, in chapter 10, uh, chapter 9, when he started on this bit of his argument. What did he start off with? He says, look, the foundational truth that you've got to lay before we even get into the argument is this. The word of God is true. See? Because that's what a Christian is. The Christian says, I believe God's word. God is true. It's no use starting off saying, right, well, I'm going to doubt God's word and then I'm going to try and figure it out from there. What nonsense. You'll never reach any true answers like that. So we hit this enigma, this big enigma of predestination and free will. But that's how Paul deals with it. And he says, yes, it is an enigma indeed. But my goodness, wouldn't it be odd? Here we are, sinful creatures made of dust, following Almighty God who made the universe. Aren't we to expect to get a bit of mystery here and there? Well, of course. I mean, God, God, God became a man who was human and divine. Well, how could he have been both at the same time? I'll tell you, I ain't got a clue, but I know he was. And at the end of the day, you can argue that all you like. The truth is that God became a man called Jesus. And Jesus was fully man in such a way that he didn't cease to be divine. And yet he was fully divine in a way that neither was he somehow less or more than human. Well, boom. This is the deep, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments. Right, boom, boom. Right, now we move on to, to the third section. And um, as we come on to this, we're, 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 we're going to see a pattern emerging that we're going to see again and again in the letters that Paul writes. Not all of them, but most of them. And it's the fact that uh, what he often does is that he'll start off a letter in that kind of with, this is what God has done. And, and he'll paint broad sketches of great truths of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. And really, that's what Romans 1 to 11 has all been about. And what he then does, having established what the truth of the gospel is, what it is that God has done for us, he then says, right, he moves on. He says, right, so this is now what it means. This is what you've got to do now. So he's established what God has done for us, and now he says, right, now this is what you've got to do if you're Christians, okay? So what we're here now is we're seeing where the doctrine, where the theology has to now be worked out in practical action, all right? And in chapter 12, he kicks off with this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because God's mercy is what he's been talking about, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, now, that's the ultimate demand, isn't it? You've got to live as if you're dead. But then, as he said in chapter 6, we died with Jesus on the cross, didn't we? It's perfect. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. He says, coming together, singing, praying, oh, that's worship, but unless it's being lived out during the week, what's the point? He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't think like unbelievers but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will able, be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So what Paul says, right, okay. He says, so what, what have you got to do now? What have we got to do? We've established what God has done for us in Jesus. Right, what does this mean for us? And he says, well, what it means is that we've got to be living dead people. 
totally surrendered to the Lord as a sacrifice is when it goes on the altar. All right. And, um, and he says, and I'm going to show you how, in practical terms, this works out. Now, still in chapter 12, in verses 3 to 8, and we're going to go quickly now because we're relatively straightforward, and, um, you know, so I'll, I'll go fairly quickly. In verses 3 to 8, he says, it boils down to having right relationships with other people by having a right relationship with yourself. And he defines what a right relationship with yourself is. And he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Now that defines a Christian who's in right relationship with himself. He doesn't think of himself more highly than he ought. Why? Because he knows that he's a sinner and he knows that he's a servant. So he doesn't put himself first. He's not the centre of his universe. Jesus is and then others are, okay? And Paul says, and whatever your gifts and calling, all right, various gifts that work in the church, whatever your gift and calling, he says, give it all you've got. So whatever way God has called you to serve him, do it with all your might. And in verses 9 to 21, he then moves on to deal with relationships with other people. It is establishing if you're in right relationship with yourself, if you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, and you shouldn't because you're a living sacrifice, and if in whatever way God has called you to serve him, you're doing that with all your might, then you are going to be in right relationship with other people. And he deals with you know, how to relate to uh, your enemies and, and those who you know, bless those who curse you, make sure you forgive. And, and he, bought, he says, look, love, love people sincerely and hate what is evil. And he sums it up. He says, make sure your relationships with other people um, are good. And, and he says, look, be devoted to one another. Crumbs, devoted. And he says, in brotherly love. You can be devoted to people for all sorts of wrong reasons. But he says, be devoted to people in brotherly love. And he says, be fervent. So in your life, in your following the Lord, in your serving, be, be fervent. Bit of bit of energy in it says, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, be faithful in prayer. And he says, share with those who are in need, there's giving, and practice hospitality, there's the open home. So he said, right, in view of everything that God has done for us in Jesus, and in view of the fact that we're chosen, we're saved, what does this mean? And he says, right, what it means is you don't think of yourself very highly. Why not? Because you're a living sacrifice. So if you don't think of yourself too highly, you're taken up with the Lord and with other people. So if you're taken up with the Lord and other people, then this is the sort of person you're going to be. You're going to be someone who loves other people. You're going to be someone who forgives. You're going to be someone who wishes even your enemies well. Paul says that's what love is all about, brotherly love. He says, do it. Then, in chapter 13, he moves on to our relationship to the government, to our society. And basically, he says, 
submit to governmental authority. So there you've got law and order. Christians should be good law-abiding citizens. And he says, and pay your taxes. So no tax fiddling, all right? Anything like that. Um, obviously, if the, the state is, is making laws that go against God's law, then God's law comes first. I mean, if the state makes it illegal to pray, then we will break that law, but only because God's higher law clicks in. But basically, we should submit to the authorities. This is why we should drive by the speed limit and, you know, and, and pay our taxes. And then he goes on to say, and, and, and also, in, in the same way that you're bound to the above, i.e. you are duty-bound to, um, you know, to obey the government and you owe them your taxes, he says, in the same way, uh, he says, you must pay the debt of love to your neighbour. He says, you owe your neighbour love in the same way that you owe your government taxes says your neighbour can make the same demand of love on you that your government can of your taxes, of your money. That's absolutely right and proper. And he says, look, obeying the law, what is it all about? He says, it's loving your neighbour as yourself. That sums up the living out of our Christian lives. Because if I'm going to say I'm right with God, it's going to show because I'm right with others. So if I love my neighbours, I love myself, then to that extent I can say I'm in right relationship with God. And he goes on to say, look, we must be clothed with Jesus. He uses the, lang you know, the terminology of dress. We must put on Jesus in the same way that we put our clothes on. And he says that we mustn't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Look, he, he says, no immorality, no, no going out getting legless, We've been called to live holy lives. So we don't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We clothe ourselves, we wear Jesus, because Jesus lives in us. And he says, look, put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. So again, that idea of dressing. Are we going to dress in our sin or are we going to dress in the new life that Jesus has given us? In chapter 14, he moves on to the area of making judgments on other people in what you would call the grey areas. Now, the Bible contains many absolutes. And indeed, you know, I mean, there are times even aren't there for a church to make a judgment on someone that they must go. If they're living in willful sin of certain kinds that are absolute, black and white, if they will not repent, then they're put out of the church until such time as they do. So there are absolutes and obviously judgments have to be made in regards to that. But Paul talks about non-moral grey areas. Right? And he says that what you've got to do is you've got to give people freedom of conscience in the non-moral grey areas. The two examples that he gives are vegetarianism and sabbatarianism, by which I mean having a Sabbath once a week. Now, it's quite clear from the teaching of the Bible that we're meant to be meat-eaters. Not, it's, it's not good to be vegetarian. God wants us to eat meat. But what Paul says, but if you've got a weaker brother, okay, who's a vegetarian, because his conscience won't let him eat meat, he says it's not the same as if he's living with his girlfriend or something. Just, just accept him. Pray for him, but don't... He says, 
but not for disputes over opinions. I mean, feel free to discuss it, but, but not, not bashing them over the head. And he says the same with Sabbath. There's no Sabbath. There are no special days for us. Every day is the same. But he says, if you've got people, Christians, they've got weak consciences, they want a Sabbath. He says, let them. Don't, don't, get, you know, don't let it be a means of disputes and dividing off from each other. So no moral judgments on people in matters of grey areas. Otherwise, you put a stumbling block in people's way. Um, you know, so, 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 you know, sort of that, that, that's important. And he goes on to say, look, the kingdom of God isn't eating and drinking. He says it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he says, we've got to keep our priorities straight here. No falling out or disputes over secondary matters. Where you have absolutes in the Bible, that is different. In Corinthians, Paul says you must judge each other. Of course you must. But Paul is talking about the grey areas where, you know, sort of like, I mean, obviously there are many grey areas where the Bible doesn't speak one way or the other. It's up to you. But there are other non-moral areas like vegetarianism, sabbatarianism. Paul's saying, look, even in regards to that, you know, don't, don't, don't get het up about it. You know, I mean, it's like if there was someone who was, who was convinced, you know, that the teaching of the Bible about head coverings is that women have to wear hats. Well, well, well fine, they don't have to. But if, if they want to, fine, but don't fall out with them. The, these are secondary non-moral issues, all right? They're not... Yeah, they're not the real business. So, you know, so Paul says, don't, 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 don't get hung up on them. He says, look, unity is important, even if it means that you have to forego some of your own freedoms. So, say we have someone who's vegetarian, right? Well, okay, if you invite them around for a meal, don't, don't put a steak in front of them, you know, and, and, and quote from Genesis 6. Just, just do a vegetarian meal. And, and you have a vegetarian, you know, that, that's great. And, you know, sort of like, in these, these are things where we go by our conscience. Um, and, and if there's something that you know is right for you and you don't do it, as far as you're concerned, that's sin. And if, if there's something that, 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 that you know is right and you're not doing it, that's sin. So in these non-moral grey areas, our conscience is our final authority, all right? And so we mustn't force people against their conscience. Now, chapter 15, and he goes on to, to say that, again, it's, it's still on the, the, the same sort of theme. He says that the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Um, I was always a bit amazed. Well, not, not, not yeah, yeah well, I, so I stopped being amazed because I got used to it. But, for instance, all the years when I was in bondage to smoking and couldn't, you know, I couldn't give it up, I mean, eventually laws, you know, enabled me to. But all those years that I couldn't, I was amazed at the attitude that Christians took to me. I mean, I, I, I have literally known Christians who would have more understanding in their approach to someone who was living with their girlfriend than to a Christian who couldn't give up smoking. Now, smoking is a non-moral area. Oh, it's not good to smoke. It's killing you. It's a non-moral area. It's not verse in the Bible that says you mustn't smoke or anything like that. And and yet, you know, so in the view of this, the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Crumbs. I had so much grief from other Christians, I couldn't give up smoking. 
crazy. So if you've got people with weaknesses in their lives, we're not talking about someone who's weak in the area of sleeping around. We're not talking about anything like that. We're not talking about someone who's weak in the area of stealing things. We're not talking about people who are weak in the area of, of, of telling lies and, and slandering people. But we're talking about these non-moral issues. And Paul says, look, if you're strong, you know, if, if, if you're strong enough to eat meat, you big boy, well, be strong enough to love those who, who can't. If you're strong enough to not have a Sabbath, well, be loving towards those who want one. So he says, look, <coughs> build people up for their own good. So he said, again, he's go back to unity, and he says, look, we've got to accept one another as Jesus accepts us. And Jesus accepts us with all our sins and all our foibles. But what Paul is saying, obviously, in black and white moral areas where it comes to blatant sin, obviously that's different. But he's saying in all these grey areas, put up with one another, bear with it, it really doesn't matter. It's, it's not worth getting hung up about. And then Paul talks about um, his being an apostle to the Gentiles. And, uh, you know, we're getting to the end of the letter now and we're starting to go a bit all over the place. Um, Paul talks about how God had called him to be uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. And, um, and, and, and that what, what he considered that calling all about was that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God and sanctified through the Holy Spirit. Now there you actually have the definition of what, you know, I mean, if we want people to become Christians, that's what we're after. That's what God wants for you and I. He wants us to become an offering acceptable to him. Now we're back to give your bodies as a living sacrifice. And he wants us to be sanctified through the Holy Spirit, i.e. being set free from the power of sin in our lives. Now, that's what Paul's ministry was all about. He says, that is my calling. Remember, he's writing to a largely Gentile church. And he says, this is what I want for you, that you will be an offering acceptable to God and that you will be sanctified. And all these things he's saying about being in right relationship to people, he says, this is what it's all about. This is what I want for you, he's saying. <coughs> and then he goes on to say that he glories in his service to God. So what God has called him to do, he says, he glories in it. And he says all he wants to do is to fully proclaim the gospel. Not half proclaim it. A, a, a Christian is not interested in getting converts. Jesus told the disciples to make disciples. That's what we want. Disciples, not converts, all right? And Paul says, and I want to fully proclaim this gospel where it hasn't been heard before. So he says, look, if someone, you know, he says, if I go somewhere and there's someone else preaching the gospel, building churches, he says, right, I'll leave them to, I'll go somewhere else. Paul wasn't in competition with anyone. He just wanted to serve the Lord and make disciples with people. And then he says as well how he, you know, sort of like how the signs followed, the miracles followed him, 
of the signs of an apostle, as, as he calls it. But again, I mean, that, that makes me, well, oh Lord, you know, where are the miracles? I mean, I don't know where the miracles are, but I'm going to keep praying, uh, praying for them and, until they happen. And then Paul tells them that he was planning to visit them very soon. Um, when we did the introductory talk last time, we saw that um, in actual fact, he didn't get there anything like as soon as he wanted to, and certainly not in the circumstances he wanted to. He got there much later as a prisoner. Uh, but he said, look, I am planning to come and visit you. And uh, he, he asked them to, um, to be praying for him as well. And uh, then chapter 16, as we begin to, to, to wind up, he gives various personal greetings to people at the church in Rome. There's quite a long section where he just sends his regards to, you know, this, that and the other various people. And, um, and then he gives a warning. I'm actually going to read this. This is the last chapter, Romans 16, verse 17. And um, I think what we'll do, we'll just read, read the, we the, the West, <laughs> the rest. Uh, he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. So as Paul, beginning to wind up, he gives them that warning. These are the factious people. Often they are believers. They're, they're, they're rebellious believers. They're carnal Christians. We've seen this, haven't we, in this fellowship? And every biblical church will see it because it's one of the ways Satan attacks. You get carnal Christians who aren't willing to repent of their sins. So what they do in their rebellion, in, in, in their stung consciences, what they do is they try and divide people. They, they, they try and, and, and kind of exert what they see as being their own righteousness over and above everybody else. And what you always find is that what they say goes against the Bible, goes against the teaching of the Word of God. And they cause divisions and they put obstacles in the way of those who are just trying to follow the Lord. And that is why Paul says, keep away from them and that is sometimes why you do have to exert a discipline in the church and tell people to go for those who are not willing to repent of their sins and who are causing trouble that's the point uh, who are causing trouble I mean obviously we've all got ongoing sin that we struggle with but I'm talking about here are people who will not repent of their sins and who cause trouble against people they're the slanderers um, they're the ones, the whispering behind people's backs, um, you know, sort of like the false accusations, everything in darkness, uh, the refusal to submit to any kind of authority, doing what's right in their own eyes. And uh, beware of them, Paul says, be, be, be very careful. And of course, they're smooth talkers and they're flatterers. They know how to come over as lovely Christian people, but remember by their fruit you shall know them.
and, and the fruit of the Spirit is not darkness and slander and backbiting and unforgiveness and resentment. Beware that, Paul says. And then he says, Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And he says, what a lovely way to be. I want you to be all, if something's good, I want you to be all genned up on it. Experts in what's good, all right. But if something's evil, then I suppose he's saying, in effect, you've got to be a bit like Beresford is when it comes to DIY. Hopeless, no good at it, you see? So he's saying, be good at what's good, but, but, but be no good, be innocent when it comes to what's evil, okay. And, uh, and then he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a, there's a, 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 Satan is under our feet now in one way, and yet in another sense it's only when, when we're glorified that, that we'll know that complete and utter victory. And, uh, you know, so, so eventually, you know, sort of like the God of peace. Satan always stirring up trouble. Is that ties in with these carnal Christians he's been talking about. Satan's behind them, stirring up trouble. He says, the God of peace will, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Then he says, the, the God of uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Uh, Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So, um, Tertius, Paul, Paul usually would dictate his letters, all right? So, Tertius is the guy writing, Paul's doing the dictating. And he says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. And then we finally get this, this, this last great ending of the letter. And listen to this. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings, what Paul and the other apostles are writing, by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, so there you have Romans, probably the grandest and most systematic outlining of what the gospel is, probably in, in the entire Bible. So um, you'll, you'll need to listen to this tape again. Um, it's, it's not easy to get your head round, uh, but if it was, it would be something less than the gospel, wouldn't it? Especially the whole thing about God choosing us and uh, whether or not we've got free will.